I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Today is the publication day of these stories, and I can't tell you how relieved I am not to be reading about um, suicide, <laughs> which I have been doing for the last uh, uh, few months. Um, so some new material to read. Fantastic. It's another reason to write. Um, I'm going to read two stories. Um, they're each about 15 minutes long, because you look very erudite and indulgent, so you're also forewarned. Um, the first is called Honey, um, and I wrote it very quickly in the course of, uh, uh, of under a week for a competition, which was a silly thing to do, I thought. It was a kind of open competition. The prize was €20,000 for um, the centenary of Bloomsday. I was offered by the pub in which um, Leopold Bloom has his lunch. And I thought, I can't, I can't enter an anonymous cont- uh, competition. I'm a professional writer. This is terrible. And then I thought what my mother would say when she heard that I hadn't even tried for 20 grand. <laughs> After clipping and saving every short story competition in every newspaper for 15 years. Anyway, it won. Jesus. Um, this is called Honey. When she tried to think what they looked like, the women who stood in front of him at wine receptions or at his desk or at the door of his office, the nearest she could come up with was drenched. They stood with their arms slightly lifted from their sides as though their fingers were dripping water. Like a childhood picture of the princess and the pea, when the princess arrives at the palace door, her dress a sopping sheet and rain trickling out of her little green shoes. Of course, there would be other things going on, chat or laughter or the way they worked their eyes, but none of it so remarkable as this straining stillness, standing at his threshold or placing some file quickly on his desk or interrupting his small talk in a crowd to say quite wordlessly, fuck me again, you must, you must fuck me again, because this was very clearly what was going on or what had gone on, and would not, at a guess, continue to go on any more. It was bad for business, in a mild sort of way. Catherine was a client, after all, but these women ignored her. They just couldn't wrench their heads around to be introduced. And she did feel herself to be elbowed aside. You must not speak to her, whoever she is. You must fuck me instead, now, any time. 
It happened three, perhaps four times in the few years she dealt with them. Mostly, Catherine was amused by it, although she did find the women really very rude, each of them so beautiful and distinctive. Of course, they didn't last, and she might have felt aggrieved on their behalf for the way they were pushed out while he continued to make his way up, were it not for their ambition, which was so open, almost livid. Catherine had never slept with anyone for gain in her life, if you could call it gain. She wondered if she was missing something. She felt so ordinary beside them, fuddy and intellectual. There was too much pleasure for her in the way he just looked at them steadily and carefully spoke and then turned back to her to say, sorry, sorry, go on. Phil Brogan, five foot nine, at a push, 40-ish, sex machine. Actually, she liked him. Clever and restless and constantly perceptive. In some ways, he was not like a man at all. And it wasn't as if he was married, as she said to her partner, Tom, so why not? There was a story about a stationery cupboard, which she didn't believe. But even so, it said something about the suddenness of him. She assumed that this was what got them going, though she didn't know what it was that brought them back for more. Big cock, said Tom. Do you think? She said, absolutely. Which was a brittle enough attempt, as these conversations go. But in the last while, they had other things on their minds. Catherine's mother was dying, far too young and far too painfully of cancer. So as well as all the phone calls and the ferrying, there was the mother thing, which is to say too much complaining and too much love. She was in chemotherapy, four months in from a late diagnosis and an unknown number of weeks or months or years from the end of it all. Her mother was so weak, she reeled into the car door every time Catherine went around a corner, and when they braked, it was only the seatbelt that stopped her from bumping her face on the dash, and she complained all the time. Catherine was going too fast, she was going too slow, she wanted to have a cigarette. What was wrong with high heels? When was Catherine going to lighten up, get, get something done with her hair? And then in the hospital, when the pain relief was good, such peace, her mother existing, breath by breath at her side, both of them listening to her body, the silent chemicals doing their silent work, and the dent on the side of her breast, the largest thing in the room. Catherine thought about bees in a swarm, the cancer being smoked out of her mother's body to settle in the space under her arm, a drowsy mass if she could just scoop them up as a beekeeper might and carry them away and leave not a single one behind. In the evening, while Catherine dozed in her chair, a hand might come out to startle her. It would touch her arm or face, her mother's voice behind it saying, Go home, kitty kit. Go home to that man of yours. Tom was being sadly perfect since these days, sadly perfect these days. There was always food in the fridge and clean t-shirts in the basket and silence when silence was the necessary thing. But Catherine knew that once the light was out, he would break across the space between them in a rush to comfort her with hands and mouth and all his large physical self. Don't, she said, don't make me cry. 
As the months ground on, she told him it was as though she was missing something down there, a widget or a grommet or a switch you might throw. She did not say that when he stroked her, it felt as though her skin was coming off under his hands. And so they had some sex, not much, and snapped at each other or did not speak, while Catherine's mother was discharged with no talk of readmission. And around a schedule of home helps and neighbours, work staggered on. The maddest thing was the way she decided that her mother must be better if the hospital had let her go. The way she thought very clearly and thoroughly that even though her mother was not cured, even though she was in fact dying, she was also much, much better in many significant ways. Of course she was better. She was back home. In the middle of this strange and untrue time, Phil Brogan rang. He needed to bring a client to a conference in Killarney, he said, in May. Would she do it? Would she mind? The hotel was fantastically swish. Call it a freebie, her Christmas bottle of brandy arriving early in the year. Hang on, she said, and checked her diary. She could, she could go if her mother was a little better by May, or she could go if her mother was dead by, say, the end of April. But if her mother was actively dying during those four days in May, then Catherine would not be able to make it. So because she loved her mother, there was only one answer she could give. Yes. No problem. <laughs> Thanks. Not even stopping to think whether a conference in Killarney was really her bag. In the next four weeks, her mother's ba pain became unbearable. And talking to her GP, Catherine realized that she would have to beg for a hospice bed. Once she gave in to the idea of death, she couldn't stand the wait. People weren't supposed to linger in hospices. Who was clogging up all the beds? Keep moving, she shouted in her head. Keep moving. Nights, she and her sister took turns to sleep in their mother's spare room with a shelf full of medication and a list of times and doses that they checked and rechecked until the writing made no sense. Rolling her mother over to change the soiled sheet or scolding her while she tried to get a hypodermic into her thigh, Catherine was sustained by a peculiar fantasy. She was riding a horse around the lakes of Killarney, like a bad costume drama with Phil Brogan in tow. Sometimes they got down off the horses and went for a swim. Sometimes they stopped under a spreading oak tree. And then the hospice. The doctors were generous with their drips and shots. Her mother one day, wild on morphine, sitting up in bed, applying green eyeshadow and saying, these are the things I regret. I never slept with a Frenchman. I never slept with that little fucker, what's his name, who went on to make all the money. I didn't enjoy you girls enough when you were still young enough not to thwart me. I deeply resent all that dieting. Deeply. Bitterly. What else? Nothing. I hate the taste of caviar. For two weeks, Catherine walked the corridors with sympathetic nurses and murmuring friends and did not give in to the obscene urge she had, which was to say, well, she'll have to die soon. I'm off to Killarney in May. In the event, her mother made it with more than a week to spare. Catherine threw 12 white roses into the open grave and stepped back from the loose earth and the sharp drop. Tom held her by the waist and forearm as though they were skating. 
And that was what it felt like, an incredible lightness as she walked away from the mess of ground. The air was shocking, pure and sharp, with the smell of early summer rising from the soil. In the distance, someone was mowing the graveyard grass. It was May. The planet was turning. Her feet still touched the ground. She packed and repacked for Killarney four or five times. She had to bring togs. She had to have business suits and dresses for the evening and mid-morning jeans for lounging around in and horse-riding gear. She wondered if she could play golf. Have I ever played golf? She shouted at Tom through the open bedroom door. No, he said. I'm sure I played golf with you once, somewhere high like Hoth or Bray Head. Not with me, said Tom. That evening he walked into the bathroom as she was waxing her legs and winced and went back out again. In the morning he dragged the oversized suitcase to the car and kissed her on the forehead and said, Relax, have a good time. The hotel was a large old country house. Catherine felt like another person when she walked up the granite steps. She felt like a person who liked hotels. There wasn't a piece of chintz in sight. It was all slate and warm wood and waffle cloth robes. She rang Phil's room from the phone beside her bed. She could hear him shift and settle after he picked up and knew that he was lying down too. So, you made it. Then he didn't seem to want to hang up for a while. They met downstairs and ordered coffee. No, he said, what the hell, it's after four. We could have a gin and tonic or a beer, something fizzy. What about champagne? Do you do it by the glass? The waitress blushed. Catherine thought he was being really cheesy until he turned back to her and said, sparkling wine? It wasn't the waitress he wanted. It was true. Phil Brogan wanted to do something very sudden and very urgent with her, Catherine Maguire, recently bereaved. Or, seeing as this was a hotel and not a stationery cupboard, something very urgent and very slow. She felt a rising impulse to giggle, but he held her gaze and did not look away. There was nothing in this guy's pants that liked a joke. That was what all the drenched girls knew. This imperative, this trap. A gin and tonic is fine, she said. Horrible to be so mirthless, she thought, and wondered if they would end up in his room or do it in hers. Phil took out his mobile and went with a flourish to switch it off. Hang on, sorry, one last call. It was to a florist. The flowers he had ordered for his mother, he had changed his mind. Not an orchid, roses. Twelve. Red. Right, to my darling mother on her birthday. What a romantic... When she thought about it later, this phone call was the weirdest moment of the whole three days. The helpless need he had to mark her cards. He was a guy who loved his mother. No wonder he was still single. Catherine didn't think they made them like that anymore. But at the time, it was the coincidence that startled her. This wasn't about sex or betrayal. This was about flowers falling into a grave. It was about red roses or white. It was about dying or being alive. It was something she had to do. Meanwhile, she didn't know how these seductions went. Who moved? Who demurred? Did it last 
for three nights or half a night? And would she be doomed ever afterwards to supplication and hunger, not being able to cross the threshold of his office, but standing in the rain at the door? She left him to shower and change, then came down to dinner and flirted like crazy over the poached wild salmon. Her mother would have been proud of her. Actually, though, there was nothing else she could do. She could hardly speak, so she might as well simper. It was unbearable. At half past twelve, she fled from the bar with a quick good night and lay awake endlessly in the dark of the room. She thought about Tom. Sometime before dawn, she got out of bed and looked in the mirror. It was a different body in there. Grief had made her thin. In the morning, she called Phil's room from the front desk and climbed into the car, and he climbed into the car beside her, his hair still damp from the shower. She drove to a larger, cheaper hotel in town where they walked into the function room and they did their spiel and were good at it, after which there was the whole afternoon to fill before darkness and sex or no sex one more time. Phil seemed amused by all this scheduling, the intimacy of it. And back at their own hotel, he suggested they go their separate ways for a while. What for? Catherine hired a horse and trekked a path behind the hotel that opened into scrubland high above the famous lakes. She looked at them far below, green and grey, as the weather chased across the water. She looked up at the sky and across at the light and around her at the lichened small oaks with their dry, scrubby branches. The horse's mane under her hand was thick and electric. She picked up the reins and turned towards home. They met for drinks at five, by which time Catherine could not speak at all, which was fine. Phil told her about himself, his scrambler bike, his trip to Mexico, his teacher with the strap. He was at his interesting best. But every time she opened her mouth, he just looked at her. Why was she always throwing things off kilter? There was something that had to happen before they had sex, a personal thing, and she didn't know what it was. Will you have another one, he said, waggling his empty glass at her. Yes, said Catherine, I think I will. My mother just died. He missed a beat. I I'm sorry to hear that, he said. Well, when I say just, it was actually quite a while ago now. I see. Sometimes it feels closer, that's all. It sort of sneaks up on you. Yes, he said, I, I think I know what you mean. It was possibly the rudest thing she'd ever said to him. Over dinner, she realised that he was trying to impress her. That was why she was supposed to listen and not talk back to him. Her mother used to tell her these things. She was not supposed to impress him. It was supposed to work the other way around. So she smiled in an impressed sort of way and tried not to think about the look in his eye or the exact heft of his dick in her hand. She knew that if it didn't happen tonight, the whole situation would become unpleasant. So she planned her move using the moment when they pushed back from the table to suggest a walk in the garden at the back of the hotel. He looked at her and nearly smiled. Good girl, he seemed to, to say. Well done. They went out into the moonlight and walked in pre coital silence down avenues of clipped box 
Some of the roses were out already, white and grey against the black of the bushes, and there were low pools of green where a line of lights showed the way. It was May. The central path was shaggy with lavender not yet in bloom. Someone had thrown a sweater over the gatepost at the end of the walk that, as they got closer, shifted in the corner of her eye. Catherine looked. Oozing over the concrete ball was a dripping black velvet swarm. Clumps of bees fell from the ragged edges or crawled back up the gatepost to rejoin the mass. It was like watching some slow liquid spill and then unspill itself, honey making its way back into the jar. Bees, she said to Phil, who stood stock still as she walked forward to stare at them. Then she ducked down to catch a falling cluster and set it back on the pile. Jesus, she heard him say behind her. The bees were bristly and soft and their tiny legs clung to her fingertips as she shook them back into the mess of black wings. She watched them until she could not tell them apart. And then she started to cry. But it was not this that she was ashamed of, finally as Phil Brogan lost his moment and walked her back into the hotel. She was ashamed of what she had felt as she stepped away from her mother's grave. That lightness. It was desire. And it was vast. The smell of the air and of the soil and the grass. Tom not supporting her with his arms so much as holding her to the skin of the earth. It was like she could fuck anything. The Killarney lakes and the sky that ran over them and posh hotels with waffle cloth robes and the pink scent of a rose that showed grey in the darkness and the whole lovely month of May. She could swim in it and swallow it and cram it into her in every possible way. All of it, that is, except for this unpleasant man who could not face his own consequences, who stood outside her hotel bedroom and said, what about a nightcap? You must have got a fright. Catherine looked at him. She did not know where the air stopped and her skin began. Not really, she said. Thank you. Um. This, uh, this next story was written for The Voice, um, uh, not my voice, but um, I, I, in the middle of reading that I realised that this other story is also about death and infidelity. <laughs> uh, just an insight I didn't really need into my own work there. <laughs> so your work is all about death and infidelity. Uh, and I suppose yeah, I, I had a very aggressive journalist from New Zealand say, there's a lot of dead people in your work. <laughs> and I said, are there really? I said, well, there's nobody dead in the first one. Or, or the second. <laughs> I got down to number five. She said, oh, come on, she said. <laughs> um, but I do find often, um, and I don't know why, that I have been writing the story of Orpheus and, and Eurydice um, and I am surprised by the fact that I've done it again, basically, and go back often to the Rilke, um, uh, which I, I, I freely steal. Um, 
So uh, this is another one. Um, the girl died. Well, what was that to me? The girl died. And it was nothing to do with us, with either of us. She died the stupid way that people do in a car crash in Italy where, presumably, she was driving on the wrong side of the road. Silly twit. If the girl had not died, then she would not have mattered in the slightest. She would have been a lapse. My husband is prone to lapses. Less often of late, but yes, once every couple of years he does lapse after the office party, say, or travelling on business. I don't think he visits prostitutes. I mean, some men do. Some men must. Or quite a lot of men must, actually. But my husband doesn't. And I know, I know, I would say that, but I've thought about this a lot over the years. Things catch my eye in articles and magazines. I've wondered what makes them go and what makes them stay. What do they want? Men. It's the great mystery, isn't it? What men want and the damage they might do to get it. The things you read in the papers. Oh, sure, they're all the same. Isn't that what your mother used to say? They're all the same. But they're not. They have their reasons and they have their limits. They have hearts, too. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that my husband is not the kind of man to buy sex in the street. He likes intimacy. That is what he craves. My husband is the kind of man who will always look you in the eye. He loves women, even older ones. He loves to talk to them and make them feel good. And he loves to kiss them and be a little dangerous. He loves the melancholy of all that. It makes him feel so young. And he also loves me. He's not a bastard. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that he's a fantastic man. My husband is a fantastic man. And until the girl died, beetling along in her little Renault Clio on the wrong side of a road in Tuscany, until the girl died, that was enough for me. To be married to a fantastic man who loved me and was prone once in a long while to a little lapse and a lot of Catholic guilt about it. Oh, the bloody bunch of flowers and the new coat in Richard Allen's sale. Isn't it worth it, I used to say. Isn't it bloody worth it for a trip to Brown Thomas's and a long weekend with the kids, all of us together in Ballybunion, walking the winter beach, a couple of bottles of wine and more conjugal antics than is decent at our age with my wonderful husband home again after his little lapse some over-ambitious young one who will shortly be fired. Thank you, darling. And no, I know you will never do it again. But actually, I hated it. It was like living on a page of some horrible Sunday newspaper. Horrible people, horrible people with their horrible sex lives and their horrible money. No, he works hard, my husband. And I have always been a great asset to him. And we are ordinary people. And I'm proud of that too. Ke I can't say his name. Isn't that funny? It's quite an ordinary name. I say it all the time. Mind you, he never calls me anything back. Isn't the way of it? Isn't that the way of it? What do men call their wives? M. 
Like every woman in the plan on the planet was christened Emily. Um, is that shirt clean? The girl was called, listen to this, Samantha. Not that I knew this at the time, not that I knew anything at the time. And she was only called Samantha because she died. If it hadn't been for the car crash, she would have been and always remained. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That young one in IT, or even that slapper over in IT. O'Connell Street might be full of slappers, but if one of them slaps off pissed in our miniskirt and high heels and gets herself run over, then she's what? She's a fine young woman who liked to wear white. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with my husband. And it is a laugh. God knows I've laughed often enough myself. The the poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with the father of my three children did something worse than all that. She went and died on him too. She went and died on us all. Of course, I didn't have a clue. He came home. When I think about it, it must have been the day he'd heard the news. And he sat on the sofa. And for the first time since his mother's funeral, I saw him cry. The children saw him cry. I had no idea what he was crying for. I felt like calling an ambulance. Then I put two and two together and realized he must be lapsing again. He must be mid-lapse. And I panicked. I know that. I did panic. And it's not like me. He lifted his head to speak to me and I said, I don't want to know. That was all. I don't want to know. And I said it really fast, like I was talking off the record here, like what was happening was not actually happening or he'd better make bloody sure it wasn't happening because I wasn't having the mess of it all all over my beautiful hard-won house. And he pushed his face around to clear away the tears. Not hot tears, not outraged, grief-stricken tears. Just that leaky, worn-out water you find on your face sometimes when you are sick or defeated. He wiped the tears away. And then he just sat. My fantastic man. The first time it happened, at a guess, was when the children were small. I was up to my tonsils and nappies and mayhem, falling asleep before my head hit the pillow, fat as a fool. Anyway, they feel excluded, fathers. Isn't that what the articles say? They have the weight of the world on their shoulders, and after a while, I'm convinced of this, they start to resent you, maybe even to hate you. Then one day, they love you madly again, and you realise, slowly you realise, that they've been up to something. They've had a fright. They've come running back home, which is nice, too, in a way. Oh, what the hell? The first time I died, my father was in having some tests, actually, and I was far too busy to shout at my husband or go through his pockets or sniff at his clothes before I put them in the washing machine. I had more important things on my mind. In the end, 
Everything went so well, Daddy didn't even have to have chemo, after which I was too relieved to double back and start shouting at my husband or sniffing at his clothes. It was over by then. And besides, I'd learned something about myself. I'd learned that I was not that sort of woman, the sniffing sort, the type to rage and scream. And that was an odd kind of feeling, I must say, because I grew up with the same dreams as every other girl. But when the chips were down, when the chips were down, I kept my head held high. What was I supposed to do? One part of me thought he deserved a holiday, to be honest, that if I had the chance I'd take one myself. Another part of me thought, someone must die. I really thought I might kill someone for this. I might kill her, or I might kill him, or I might leave them to it and kill myself. Well, that's no use, is it? This stupidity, this incontinence of my husband's was too small to bother about, and it was too large to leave us all standing, all still alive. But maybe it was in my head from that time, in both our heads, the idea that someone must die. So what are we looking at? Two or three more over the course of the years, a scattering of accidents, and then one day, this, whatever it is, a man crying on the sofa, grief. It was half past five. The children were watching telly before tea. I cleared them out of there. My daughter, the apple of her father's eye, welling up a bit, a, a bit herself at the tragic sight of, look of him with his coat thrown beside him and his briefcase still in his hand. Kids bury that sort of stuff very deep. I thought it would be better if I talked about it to her, if she talked about it. But when I asked her a week later about her father crying on the sofa, she just looked at me like I'd landed in from outer space. What sofa, she said. Which sofa? That's Shauna for you who is nine. There's no point talking to her brothers about it. They've already gone into the grunting phase. And then I think, well, why not? Why not talk to your sons about things? Why not rear men who can speak? <laughs> because there's my husband, collapsed against the oatmeal-coloured linen mix, staring mortality in the face. And what else? His own smallness looking as though he had killed her himself, even though, although he had not killed her. He had not even loved her. Thinking, as I imagine, about some beautiful part of her, mangled by the door or, ba or bonnet, and turning already to clay. And there's no one he can talk to about this. No one at all. Men don't have friends like that. Guys, you might ring up and say, would you take him out for a drink, talk it over, sort him out. No, the only friend he has is me. And he can't tell me because I really do not want to know. All this in hindsight, of course. At the time, I looked at him and thought that our marriage was finished or that he was finished. I was looking at extended sick leave and then what? My husband, crying on the sofa, was 49 years old. And if you think 49 is a tough station, try 55. I was looking at a long future with a man who had forgotten what he was for. So when he pushes the tears off his face with his hand, and when he lifts his face to tell me all about it, there's only one thing I can say to him, and that is, I don't want to know. How did we get through the next week? Normally, at a guess. That's how we did it. We got through the week in a completely normal way, while I waited for some hint or clue 
the back page of the paper that he stares at too long and too hard. And then, on Tuesday morning, I come in from the school run and he's still there, in his dark suit, putting on his funeral tie. Who's dead? Some girl, he says. What girl? Someone's daughter? He doesn't answer. He brushes his shoulders off in the mirror. He says, we only get them trained and they're gone. Well, I'm sure she didn't mean to. Round and round goes the funeral tie, down through the knot, pull it tight, ease it a little loose again, kiss the wife goodbye. You don't want me to show, I say, because I am raging now. I know what has happened now. I want to twist the knife. No, he says, she was only in the door. You sure? No, no. Pick up your briefcase. Pull your phone off the charger. Check for your keys. Home for tea, I say. What is it? I thought I'd grill a bit of salmon. Forget where your good coat is kept. Open one door of the wardrobe. Open the other door of the wardrobe. Look to your wife, he says. It's under the stairs. Look your wife in the eye, as she says this. Reach out to touch her neck and hair. Say, thanks. Then off you go. Oh, I know what you are thanking me for. The front door clicks shut on my husband in his funeral tie and I wander downstairs to tidy away the breakfast things and make my usual cup of coffee. I fill the kettle and plug it in. I take out my mug and I put it on the counter. And then, before the water is boiled, I have the recycling bin spilt all over the floor and I'm going through the old newspapers for death notices. Samantha, Sammy McHale, tragically abroad. Easy. I get out the phone book and look that one up too. The church is in Walkenstown, so that's her family off the Cromelsfort Road. She might have lived at home still at 24, the price of everything these days. I could go there now if I wanted to. I could drive there in my little car. I wonder, do her parents know what she got up to? I have a shameful desire to tell them, so sharp, I have to stand still until it subsides. I am not that kind of person. No. I make my cup of coffee and I calm down. Still, I wonder what she looked like. What school did she go to? Do they have pictures in the corridors of former girls in a row? The class of, what year would she be? The class of 1998? So young? All the time I'm loading the dishwasher and pulling out the hoover and doing my morning round. The funeral is happening in my head, but I'm not going to jump in the car and hack my way across town to Walkenstown. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not going to panic at the last minute and show up in the cemetery to check the faces at the grave and pick up a few words here and there about what a fine girl she was. Irrepressible. Full of fun. Bloody right she was full of fun. Or not. Maybe she was shy. Unassuming easily impressed. She might have been a quiet kind of girl, a girl who was anxious to please. No, I'm not going to find this out or anything else because that would be obscene. I'm not going to show up like a ghost at the wedding. What's the opposite of that? Like a flesh and blood wife at this last dance with the dead. We had the salmon when he came home. Potatoes, a bit of asparagus. Lovely, said my husband. Delicious. 
Then he gets up afterwards and makes himself a sausage sandwich, cooled from the fridge, butter, mayonnaise, the lot. And I say, why don't you stick some lard in there while you're at it? This is the last real thing I say to him for a very long time. Where's the gas bill gone? When will you be home? Would you pick up Shauna after her ballet? We could do this forever. After a few weeks of it, my husband gets a nervous cough. He wonders if it could be lung cancer. His toe is numb. Isn't that a sign of MS? And I just say, get it checked out. Because the girl is dead. So let's not bother with the fuss and futher of getting back together. Let's not do all that again. Not this time. This time, let us mourn. I'm too proud. I know that. And in my pride, I watched him, my fantastic, stupid man, lurch around in his life. And I did not offer him a helping hand. Where's the key to the shed? When will you be home? What would, will you buy a packet of plastic blades for the flymo? The girl was with us all this time, dead or alive. She was standing at the bus stop on the corner. She was sitting in our living room watching Big Brother. She was being buried night after night on the evening news. I think that milk's gone off. When will you be home? I really don't want the children having TV sets in their rooms. After a month of this, I looked at my husband and saw that he was old. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over 30 nights or so. My husband shaking hands with death. And what else? Thinking about it thinking it wouldn't be so bad to be dead after all, like she was. Whenever I woke in the night, he was awake too. Once I heard him crying again, this time in the shower, he thought the noise of the water would cover it. So I listened to him snuffling and choking in the spray, and I realised it was time to put my pride away. It was time to call him back home. On Saturday after the supermarket run, I put on my good coat and my leather gloves and a hat, even my funeral hat. And when my husband said, where are you off to? Because God knows I can't go anywhere without drawing a map. I said, I'm going to visit a grave. I had a beautiful bunch of white lilies all wrapped up in cellophane. I picked them off the kitchen counter and walked past him. I cradled the lilies against my shoulder and I walked past my husband who was now old, and I did not look back as I went out the door. She did not matter to him. I know that. I know she did not matter. So I went to the cemetery and sought out her grave. I wandered through the headstones until I found her, and I put the lilies on the ground under which she lay, and I told her that she mattered. Then I went home and said to my husband, then I went home and said to Kevin, let's do something for Easter. What do you think? Something nice. Where would you like to go? Bravo. Thank you very much. What a wonderful reading. Um, would, you, would you care to answer any questions, if there are any? Well, if anyone wants to ask me why they're exactly the same, those two stories, I say I'll pick another two the next time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ooh, err. Um, they're not all that story. If, if anyone wants to ask a question, please put your hand up. I'll come round with this mic so that other people can... Um, okay. Um, this is a general question um, that could be applied to any author, but 
When you're reading your own short story, quite a bit of time after you've read it, how, how does that feel? I mean, do you ever have an urge to re-edit it? Well, I do. Um, I do. Have a, exactly, yes, I do want to rewrite it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And sometimes I do actually rewrite before. Uh, uh, usually if I read something, it's pretty much readable, you know. But um, uh, I, I, if I'm asked to do a clip from something that I'm not familiar with, I'll get out the biro and cause great consternation. I mean, this t- television woman said, you can't do that. I said, well, I can do it. I like, you know. <laughs> and she said, no, you know, it's printed now. You can, you know. Um, but uh, uh, yes, I well, I the f- the stories do fall apart more the more you read them. I've read each of those. One, I read Honey once before, um, and 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 the flaws become more and more apparent. So yes, y- you do, and then you ham it up to so people won't notice. <laughs> um, but I mean, the book is not, is not a stable object as far as I'm concerned, and there's no such thing as finishing a draft and then going on to a next draft. I, you know, I, I would finish a piece and then work on it until I, until I, until there's until I have to let it go. Um, so you you would I draft and redraft within the piece. It it doesn't. It's not a temporal thing. I don't go A B C D and and re, you know. So I just I keep mixing it up until the very last moment. Yes. Well, Hemings' influence is so pervasive that I couldn't claim to have avoided it because I'm sure he has influenced lots of writers also who have, who have influenced me. Okay. Um, but if people have find things in my work, I'm just very flattered. <laughs> I say, oh, yes, of course. No, but um, uh, Hemingway, not specifically, no. I would, I would, I would not own that, that influence specifically, but I would be very happy to like engage with his work again and see. Because it's, you know probably more Beckett than Hemingway, which is a similar sort of territory. And Switzerland is quite an American sort of story. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I, I changed the kind of, um, the, um, the way dialogue happens within different stories. Um, and it isn't house style always. In, in, in Switzerland, there are no um, inverted commas, so it's a kind of poetic dialogue, which you find often in American work. Um, and there's a whole distinctive other thing that happens if you put a dash before all the di- you know before dialogue. You turn yourself into Roddy Doyle before you've <laughs> got uh, through half the page. And and uh, um, and so these things matter a lot in in how you place the words within the words. I mean, how you place direct dialogue within the words matters, particularly when the question, the issue of voice is very strong. How the other voices are placed can be a delicate matter. I, um, it's just an observation I wondered if you talk about. I really like the gathering. I thought it was fantastic the way you talk about the body and the different ways that you introduce it, you know, from sort of like things like peeing to sort of, you know, there's bits where there's sort of like the kids pee and things like that, and there's other bits where you refer to external objects like mango, stones and cuttlefish, and there's different bits in the stories you read, and I just wondered if you talk a bit about the body and your relationship with it or with writing, just off the hoof? Um, that's a really complex subject. Uh, <laughs> a hugely complex subject. I mean, I sometimes tell writing students that if you use one of the five senses in every one of your sentences, then, then the reader will be there with you and will, will have something, you know, the, 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 the sentence will, will ex- the imagined thing will exist more physically for the reader. Um, 
And so the senses are very important. Uh, I, I, I use smell an awful lot because we're helpless to the sense of smell. So that, that interests me, that, um, uh, that helplessness in, interests me. It's not a chosen sense. It's not a deliberate sense. We're not in charge of it. And it's a sort of, le you know, it's a, it's a place where, we, where the world leaks into us. And, and uh, um, so um, I, I, because I write a, a, a specific, you know, because I write as an Irish woman, I'm very interested in the question of gender. And gender is, 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 Largely a question of anatomy. So, if you, if you, as far as I'm concerned, um, a lot of it is a lot of the rest of it is socially constructed. I mean, we're not an anatomically better at doing the dishes. You know, so to say, well, well, what is it to be female? Um, you have to strip away an awful lot of cant and an, I mean a lot of power play actually to wonder what it is exactly to inhabit one kind of body or another. So you have to be quite precise in how you perceive the the the, the, the workings of the body, um, and uh, I, I mean I'm not particularly um, a Manichean or anything. You know, I, I, a lot of a lot of work uh, to me is provoked by a kind of Puritan disgust, and the body is used as a an object of disgust um, in fiction, and I don't do disgust at all. Um, I find it tiresome and intellectually silly, not useful, not moral, um, not interesting. Um, so perhaps I should be more disgusted, and then my readers might be less. <laughs> um, I've got two questions. Um, the first one, maybe it's a function of me being a sleep-deprived mother, but I... Um, really enjoyed your memoir, Making Babies, and I wondered, first of all, why that you wrote that in a memoir form rather than a, a short story. And, and the second question is, um, uh, I've been travelling to Ireland for a long time to visit family, and it seems Ireland's having the, the most bizarre and profound change of being. I think the Ireland that maybe lots of English readers would recognise from Joyce or... John McGahn uh, that I knew when I was a child in the 70s is really changing fast. I mean, it's a new place, and I wondered uh, how you thought that was affecting your writing uh, or whether that's a, a wrong perception from someone who's, who, who's living a, away from there and also what you thought of other writers and how they're addressing this time of change. Thank you. Um, they're, they're two very interesting questions. One is about... Um, why I wrote in a non-fiction um, about about the, the the baby thing. It's interesting. There are a couple of stories with babies in them in in, in this collection, and they're much um, uh, the the truths in them are much uh, harsher uh, than in the baby book, which is full of the delights of 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 of, of it all. Um, I I don't know. I, I I wrote about it all by accident. Somebody. I, I, and then it, it was strongly said to me that this was very interesting work that I should, you know, collect it together. And uh, it just seemed to me, um, like every fool who's ever given birth, that nobody else had done this before. And <laughs> I must break the good news and uh, and all the rest um, of, of that. But the challenge with nonfiction is a poetic challenge, which is really strange. If you're writing about people who exist you have to write about them in some way that doesn't uh, control them. 
and doesn't demean them. And, and, and so when you're writing nonfiction about your, 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 your closest family, you have, to, you have to find a poetic sensibility to do it in, in a way that will make them uh, proud or make them more themselves, you know. So that was, that was really nice to be able to do that. I mean, I was sighing um, uh, the other day saying, I'd love to write a really simple book that made people really happy. And, and this friend said, but you did. You wrote the baby book. So um, I, it, was, it was just a time. Also, nonfiction is wonderful because you can't rewrite it. And that was the, the freedom in the baby book for me was that I could just sit down and clackety-clack, you know, and that day would never happen again because the child would be different the next day. So to record a time, it releases you from all problems of drafting and redrafting and perfectionism and, and all of that. So, so that was, that was, that was marvellous too. Then in fiction, you know, they have a, the, 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 the parents in the fiction have a harder time of it. And I don't know why fiction is the place for harsher truths. Uh, but anyway, that seems to be the way it went. The other question is about how Ireland has changed and, um, and how it's affected the writing that's going on there now. Um, people, I've been traveling a bit and everyone says Ireland has changed. I'm, you know, and I have always felt that poverty is only interesting to people who come and visit it and have a look at it and say how picturesque and aren't they lovely. Um, and so I've, I've no objection to Irish people having money. I'm quite, quite pleased for them. Then the learning curve, uh, or whatever, the learning curve ha has been really fast. Um, the uh, move through swags and drapes to limestone floors took four years. I mean, really, really quick. Right, so we don't even have to say, "Aren't they vulgar?" You know, <laughs> these peasants who got all this money. So, so I, I have no objection to, you know, to to the fact that there's money in the country, and and uh, and also I wonder what money changes. I mean, what money changes is, um, it it just if you think of another ethnic stereotype, for example, if you think, what's the difference between a poor Jewish mother and a rich Jewish mother? Is it the rich Jewish mother is going to let her child go out without a scarf on? That's not, that, you know, something has, in those stereotypes, and I'm only talking in ethnic stereotypes. So I don't know what you could say has changed about Irish people fundamentally. And the fabric, the social fabric is still very much about family. Um, and money hasn't changed that particularly, you know. Um, and also, I think, yeah, no, maybe I'm being facetious. I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you look, the, the changes suit some writers more than other writers because Ireland has always been a series of stories that people have made up anyway. Um, and those stories become false as the, as the country, uh, become more apparently false as the country changes. Um, someone like Roddy Doyle is a writer who enjoys change because he's not bound up in the ideas of rural authenticity that, um, that, that uh, Irish, the Irish national consciousness seems to require at, for, for, for very many decades, which a writer like I find opp oppressive, you know. If you're not talking about four cows in a field, you're not Irish. So, um, so it suits me, even though, you know, I write historically, or, you know, it suits me very well, uh, and I know that uh, Roddy, in his work, The Deportees, has been very, uh, is very current with, you know, ideas of immigration and all the rest. Um, 
and I can't think of a writer it doesn't suit. I mean, we take our stories from wherever and we just protect, you know, call it Ireland. Uh, you know, maybe Ireland is just a marketing thing, really. It's not a country at all. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>